Our scripture reading this morning is taken from the second chapter of Paul's epistle to the Thessalonians, the first. For you yourselves know, brethren, that our coming to you was not in vain. But even after we had suffered before and were spitefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we were bold in our God to speak to you the gospel of God in much conflict. For our exhortation did not come from error or uncleanness, nor was it in deceit. But as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, even so we speak, not as pleasing men, but God who tests our hearts. For neither at any time did we use flattering words, as you know, nor a cloak for covetousness, God is witness. Nor did we seek glory from men, either from you or from others, when we might have made demands as apostles of Christ. But we were gentle among you, just as a nursing mother cherishes her own children. So affectionately longing for you, we were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives, because you had become dear to us. For you remember, brethren, our labor and toil, for laboring night and day, that we might not be a burden to any of you, we preach to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses, and God also, how devoutly and justly and blamelessly we behaved ourselves among you who believe. As you know how we exhorted and comforted and charged every one of you, as a father does his own children, that you would walk worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. For this reason, we also thank God without ceasing, because when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you welcomed it not as the word of men, but as it is in truth, the word of God, which also effectively works in you who believe. For you, brethren, became imitators of the churches of God, which are in Judea in Christ Jesus. For you also suffered the same things from your own countrymen, just as they did from the Judeans, who killed both the Lord Jesus and their own prophets, and have persecuted us. And they do not please God and are contrary to all men, forbidding us to speak to the Gentiles that they may be saved so as always to fill up the measure of their sins. But wrath has come upon them to the uttermost. But we, brethren, having been taken away from you for a short time in presence, not in heart, endeavored more eagerly to see your face with great desire. Therefore, we wanted to come to you, even I, Paul, time and again, but Satan hindered us. For what is our hope, our or joy, or crown of rejoicing? Is it not even you in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ at his coming? For you are our glory and joy. This is the word of the Lord. I have figured out how it is you preach, she said to me. She had been listening fairly intently to my sermon and taking notes, but she wanted to let me know that there was a pattern to my madness, and she caught on to it. She said, 
what you do is you ask questions, a rhetorical question, and then you let the text answer the question you just asked. Well, she's right, actually. If you watch my sermons, that's pretty much what I do. I'll ask a question and then we'll turn to the word and the word itself will answer the question. Uh, it's, it's really just proper Bible study. To study the Bible properly, you ask questions of the Bible and the Bible itself answers the questions. But even more than that, to be an astute Bible student, you have to listen to the Bible first and let it tell you the question that it's answering. The text is from God. It is speaking to something. If you are going to understand that something, you need to let it tell you what it's talking about. And then you will have the right question to ask it to get your answer back out of it. That is what's called inductive Bible study. And if you've ever been under my teaching in a Bible study, uh, I, I tend to read the text and then say, so what stands out to you? Uh, the point is not that I haven't prepared anything. The point is I want you to listen to the text and listen for the question it's asking and then let it answer that question. Let you form the question in your mind and come up with an answer from the text because that's what you ought to be doing. You ought to be letting the Bible lead you into what is important and then understanding what's important, asking it the questions it wants to hear so that it can give you the answers that it has. With that in mind, I have effectively six questions that I have asked this text. The first is, what is the actual nature of Christian leadership? If uh, I wanted to uh, get fairly wealthy, I could write a book on that topic because those are extremely popular books. Uh, it seems to be all the rage today. What is Christian leadership supposed to look like? In my talk on the introduction to this book, I kind of already dealt with that, but it is important to bring it back up again in this chapter because this chapter is specifically weighted in that direction. So with my first question, I'll probably more summarize, but uh, when Paul talks about what it means to be a leader in the church of God, it's family-like. Uh, Paul uses language like, we longed for you. We, we wanted to see you. You were in our hearts. When he talks about how he exercised ministerial authority, uh, he said, I was like a father. He didn't say he was your father, but he said, I was like a father. He says, uh, we were like mothers to you. And again, Paul's definitely not your mother. But there is a certain uh, sphere of understanding when you talk about what a mother ought to be. A mother is supposed to be nurturing. She is supposed to be devoted. She is supposed to give her life to her children. Uh, it's draining to her to be a mother. Uh, that's the nature of motherhood. If, if you don't want to drain your life into somebody else, don't become a mother because that is absolutely part of it. 
And Paul, when he uses the term mother, he also uses the phrase, we imparted our lives into you. Uh, and it was very pragmatic. He had to work a, a second calling while planting the church. He labored night and day, not only in ministry, but also in supporting himself. But the reason why he was working his uh, fingers to the bone was because he cared about them. It was motherly. It was fatherly. A father is protective. A father is nurturing in that way that a father nurtures. It's not like a mother. It's more protective. Uh, it's more of a teacher, but it's still nurturing. Paul uses that language and in using all of that language, effectively says we were Christ-like among you. Leadership out in the world tends to be pretty cutthroat. If you study books on leadership from the world, you'll find that they have titles like The Seven Effective Habits of Genghis Khan. Genghis wasn't exactly known for his kindness or subtlety. He did manage to conquer about a fourth of the world, and so out in the world, Genghis is seen as, you know, he's, he's a success. But in the biblical presentation of what leadership among believers is to look like, it's not like Genghis. It's like Christ. And Christ himself used language like this. I and the Father are one. Uh, my will and the Father's will are the exact same thing Christ said. Uh, he looks at Jerusalem and says, uh, I would love to gather you under my wings as a mother hen gathers her chicks. When you place Paul's description of, of leadership alongside of how Christ himself described it, there is a perfect meshing. It is a family. Genghis didn't mind cutting off the fat if need be. He didn't mind crushing a few skulls. He didn't mind breaking a few eggs. That's not the way you run a family. You run a family firmly, yes. You run a family uh, with discipline, yes. Uh, but you can't just shoot somebody with arrows to make a point. That's really just not allowed. I know that's disappointing at times. Um, I remember years ago when, uh, right before we got married, Carmen was staying in the home of a, a family that was in our church, and... Um, we walked in on her spanking one of her truly rebellious children. She had a fairly large house. In fact, the whole house was always moving all the time. But we walked in on her spanking her child very appropriately, not, not abusive at all. But while spanking them, she was praying, Lord, help me not kill this child. Lord, help me not kill this child. Lord, help me not kill this child. Um, Genghis is still out, though. You, no matter how much you want to do that, you can't do that. A family is nurturing, it's caring, it is patient. And all of that comes through in Paul's description of how he administered to them. Um, he wants them to remember that he has poured his life into them. He has made sacrifices. 
And in doing so, he is simply mirroring his Lord, who made sacrifices for his elect people beyond what we can possibly imagine. I was reading a uh, atheist a couple weeks ago. Uh, he was grousing about the fact that Jesus only stayed dead for a weekend. So uh, what he was saying was basically, Jesus gave up his weekend for you. Well, I'm, I'm really not sure what metaphysically happens at death because I'm not dying yet. But I'm absolutely positive it is absolutely shattering. Death is the curse. It is the curse on sin. There's things happening in death which are beyond our comprehension. And Christ has undergone that. He has paid that price. If Paul has poured into their life, then Christ infinitely more. And these are people who are undergoing persecution. They're undergoing uh, turbulent times. But they have been paid for. They have been paid for in ways that they can barely fathom. And uh, he's reminding them of that. The next question, which comes to mind off of that is the question of why has Christianity survived? There has been 2,000 years, give or take, between the day of Pentecost and today. And when that kind of history happens, uh, there tends to be kind of a hardening and a calcifying of certain details about history. Uh, it's so far back that uh, it becomes kind of tame. But if you were to be living in the first century or in the next running three centuries, the hatred of the world for the Christian faith would be astounding to you. Um, if you go back and you read primary accounts of how the world tried to stomp Christianity out, it was ruthless. It was beyond ruthless. It was torture and murder. Women were thrown into house of prostitution. Uh, your goods were taken. Your children were taken. Um, it was, you know, North Korea doesn't really have anything on Rome. And that was the environment in which the faith first began to spread out into the world. And historians find it amazing that the faith survived. Today, one out of nine people on earth identify in some way as a Christian. That's real broad brush, but how did we get here? Because the greatest powers on earth have tried to absolutely destroy it. Well, Paul gives us a window into that at the beginning of our uh, chapter. He talks about what happened when he was at Philippi. He talks about what happened in Thessalonica. And this is what we read. For you yourselves know, brethren, that our coming to you was not in vain, but even after we had suffered before, emphasis on suffered, 
and were spitefully treated, that's an intensive, uh, we all know what it means to be spitefully treated. Uh, we don't like it. It is decidedly persecuting. We had suffered before and were spitefully treated at Philippi, as you know, so Paul made it known to them. We were bold in our God to speak to you the gospel of God in much conflict. So uh, the question the uh, historians are asking, Paul is effectively answering, here is the conflict, we suffered, we were spitefully treated, um, but our coming wasn't in vain, how did that happen? Well, the answer is for, which means because, for our exhortation did not come from error or uncleanness, nor was it in deceit. When you ask the Apostle Paul, why is the faith triumphant? Why is it able to overcome all the demonic emphasis of the world? The answer is simply, it survives because it's true. We brought you a message that didn't rise up out of our, quote, uncleanness. So there was no driving of sin, which the more you get to know human nature, anyone who wants to teach you something, you can almost guarantee they're in it for something. So when Paul says our message didn't come out of uncleanness, uh, that's kind of significant. Uh, anybody who you know, tells you something that sounds too good to be true, it probably is. But Paul says, no, it didn't come out of sinfulness, nor did it come out of error. We were not wrong about what we were talking about, nor was it deceit. It was, in fact, the truth. There is nothing so resolute as the truth. The truth cannot be destroyed. The truth cannot be uh, brought to nothingness. If it could, it would be replaced with something else, which would then be the truth. But the truth is absolute. The truth is objective. The truth is beyond destruction. And the apostle simply claims the message is true. We were abused in Philippi, but we were speaking the truth. We were threatened with death many times, but we were speaking the truth. The truth is its own motivator. The truth may be submerged, but the truth is never perfectly submerged. A friend of mine describes truth as trying to hold a beach ball underneath the ocean. Uh, it just doesn't happen. The truth will come up. And all the world's persecution otherwise, the truth remains the truth. And the truth motivates like nobody's business. It has been pointed out that most people, the incredible majority of people will not be willing to face death for a known error. For a lie, people will not give their lives. They will back down. Uh, it is significant to me that today, when you think of Mormonism, people think of Joseph Smith. But when Mormonism was first founded, 
there was actually a small cabal of six men who were really kind of the movers and shakers in the founding of that religion. Of the six of them, five of them ultimately recanted. They turned their back and said, you know, we made it up. We had certain goals we wanted to see sociologically happen. So over, uh, over dinner, we thought, how could we establish a religion that would do the things we wanted it to do? Joseph Smith did not recant, but it's very difficult to recant when you're being murdered by a mob. There's just certain things you can't pull off in that environment. Uh, but five out of six of them did. And why? Because people won't die willingly for an error. And the average man will not embrace something that he knows not to be true. To, to really find somebody willing to embrace something they know not to be true, I can only think of one truly degraded, mind-twisted, depraved segment of society that kind of does do that on a regular basis. Of course, you know who I'm talking about. I'm talking about academics. Academics will give themselves to things that are not true knowingly, and I don't know why they do it. But the average man isn't willing to do that. The average man is not willing to lay hold of his life and build it on something that he knows not to be true. Truth is required. And Paul reminds them, why is it the faith remains after every shell of the world is launched at it? It's because it's true. We would not have continued to get to you if it wasn't true. You would not continue in the faith if you didn't know it was true. But in your heart of hearts, it has what J.B. Phillips calls the ring of sincerity. It has the ring of truth. It is the truth. And the truth cannot be destroyed. Which brings up the question, uh, what is truth? Pilate asked that question. He asked it of Christ. Uh, it's a question worth answering. Well, the truth is verity. Uh, to use language of philosophy, um, A equals A. When something is true, it is. Paul demonstrates that here. Um, this is not just a philosophy. It's not just an idea. It's not just a made-up story. It's real. I find it telling, going back to that twisted segment of society academics, that over the course of my ministry, there has been a growing movement to redefine truth as it doesn't have to include verity. I was talking to a guy like that just Monday. He was saying, well, you know, I believe the Bible is true, but I don't believe in inerrancy. Well, the term inerrancy means without error. It means verity. It means the truth. And so... I asked him what, or said, I didn't ask, 
So what you're telling me is you believe something can be true, though it's false. And his answer was, well, yeah, I do. I believe that this is true, even though it's false. Again, the, the only kind of person who will let their mind be so twisted and sick is an academic. You have to have an advanced degree to get there. Those who live in the real world know that truth is verity, and verity has to have a foundation. Well, Paul talks about the foundation of verity, in verse 4 and verse 13. Paul says, But as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, even so we speak, not as pleasing men, but God who tests our hearts. In verse 13, Paul says, For this reason we also thank God without ceasing, because when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you welcomed it, not as the word of men, but as it is in truth, the word of God, which also effectively works in you who believe. In philosophy, there is the question of what is. I mean, that's really what philosophy means. It means the study of existence, effectively. And one of the big questions in philosophy about establishing its discipline is upon what ground can we lay our system so that it has a foundation? When I look out the window and see a big black structure with wheels and glass, um, I say that's a van, but why do I say that's a van? you would be surprised at how different the philosopher's answers are. Uh, Plato would say the reason why I see a van is because it is an emanation of the ideals from the other side. There is in perfection an ideal van. It is the perfect van, but it has projected itself into our reality, not perfectly and multiplicitous, but because it partakes of the essence of vanness, I see a van. Aristotle would say, no, no, the foundation of that being a van is its function. That we have given a word to vanness, van does something. In this case, it's a conveyance for a family. Um, I see that it functions that way, so it's a van. The only problem with that is truck can do that too, and so can a car. And in the Philippines, I learned it can be done on a uh, motorcycle. I've seen 30 people on one. Um, but no, Aristotle would say, no, it partakes of, of vanness and function. And on we go, the answers begin to multiply. The question of what makes something true is utterly important. Well, for Paul the Apostle, the ground of being, which is what they call it in philosophy, is the creator God. When you look at a child, and a child looks you in the eye and says, you know, I'm not really a child, I'm a cat. 
Uh, what keeps you from putting out litter boxes in the bathroom? Well, what keeps you from doing that is you know that the Creator God spoke all things into existence, and in speaking them, He lays a foundation of what they are. God said, this is a human being. God said, this is a tree. God said, this is a rock. And in so speaking, so it is, because he has the right to name what it is. That's inherent in the idea that God spoke things into being. So the foundation for what is true is what did the creator make and what does he say it is? Paul says, why is it that this message didn't come out of uncleanness or deceit or anything like that? It's because we've been sent from God. He said, this is what to tell you, and we told you. And in fact, Paul has the audacity to say, the message we spoke to you is the word of God. There are those who would say that the biblical writers did not know that they were writing the scripture. It's very hard to pair that up with what they actually said. If I were to, in conversation over lunch, tell you, now, you need to know that um, what I'm telling you right now is not my idea. God said to tell this to you word for word. Um, you might take me as crazy, and I certainly hope you would, because we don't do that sort of thing here. But it's very clear that I am claiming an authority that can't be trumped. God has spoken. I mean, there was a British politician who once made the phrase, God said, and I think rightly, but generally human beings can't do that. The, the highest card is God. Paul says, what we spoke to you was literally the word of God. You accepted it as such. That is the proper way to receive the apostolic message. It is not Paul's letter to the Thessalonians. It is God's letter to the Thessalonians through his apostle. We have spoken of this before, but it's important to keep before our mind. The word apostle was not coined for the New Testament. It was coined nearly about a hundred years before the New Testament, and it was coined by the Romans. When Caesar wanted to send a message to the far-flung uh, reaches of his empire, he would send out a man that had the imperial staff with the eagle on it and a scroll case dressed in white linen who looked every inch the part, the messenger of Caesar, and so he was, that's what the title apostle meant, a mouthpiece for Caesar. He would come into the farthest reaches of the empire and say, Caesar said this. And only an absolute fool who didn't value his life would say, well, you know, that's just Fred talking. He came, he got off the boat, he had a message, but, you know, that's just Jim. Um, he's not connected to Caesar. The armies of Caesar will say otherwise if you treat the apostle that way. 
And Paul speaks as an apostle. He says, we brought you the message of God. We are apostles of God. When we have spoken the message, it's God speaking to you. Now he does say, and this is significant in verse 13, we thank God without ceasing because you received the word of God which you heard from us as it is the word of God. You don't thank somebody for something they didn't do. It's very obvious that the word of God goes out to all the world. There is a universal call in the word of God. Uh, the word of God is going out into the world even as we speak. The knowledge of the glory of God is covering the earth as the water covers the sea, but not everyone receives it as the word of God. Some do, I trust you do, but you have neighbors and friends and relatives who shrug and say, I don't receive it that way. Why are you here in an assembly where the Bible is seen as the very word of God? Why did you hear in it the voice of God and others didn't? Well, Paul looks to heaven and says, I thank God that you received it as the word of God. It was not of your power. It was not of your wisdom. It was not because you were smarter or better uh, or even that you desired salvation more than another. I thank God because God acted. You received it as the word of God. You received it as being on the foundation because God gave that to you. This does come at a cost, though. In verse 1 and 2, Paul says, Now, I want you to remember that we suffered and were spitefully treated at Philippi. And when we got here, uh, we had much opposition. That's going to be a theme throughout our letter. Um, it's connected to a promise of God. It's connected to uh, 2 Timothy 3.12. Yes, and all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. There is a segment of the church that uses the phrase, you should name the promises of God and claim them. I don't disagree, actually. Uh, God makes promises, and you can take those to the bank, and you should claim them. I just think you ought to take all of them to the bank when God makes a promise. And by definition, 2 Timothy 3.12 is a promise. If you wish to live godly in Christ Jesus you will be persecuted. The world hates the truth. And it's an unreasonable hatred. Everywhere the gospel has gone and has taken root, the world has gotten better. Why do you think that the world is so loud in denouncing Western culture? You know it is, you know, white man's world bad. Why do they hammer that constantly, day in and day out? Well, it's not because white people were there. 
it's because this is where the gospel took root and everywhere the gospel takes root, the world gets better. Hospitals come out of the gospel. Charity comes out of the gospel. Uh, a, a sense of decorum in society that protects the weak comes out of the gospel. If you don't believe me, go somewhere in the world today where the gospel is not taking root. You will not find women and children and widows and the poor cared for in any way. The gospel improves man's lot in every way when it takes root. And yet the spirit of the world is stomp it out, kill it, spitefully treat it, bring much opposition to it. It will turn the world upside down, we read in the book of Acts. Not so. That's voiced by a pagan. What it's actually doing is turning the world right side up. But the world doesn't want the world turned right side up. The world is enmeshed in the devil. And the world will fight. And if you are a person of truth, the promise is you will be persecuted. That is required. Have you been spitefully treated for the gospel? It's a, it's a verity. Wear it with pride because it means you're the real deal. But it does come. <clears throat> I did most of my study for this sermon uh, using the NASB. Just happenstance, really, but... Um, I, I did look at the New King James Version, but not at the length I did with the NASB. Um, there's a word in the New King James here that I didn't even notice until I read it in the reading this morning, uh, which isn't there. It's not the right word. It's in verse 14 through 16. And it's more subtle than a number of translations make it, but it's the word uh, Judeans. That's not the word in Greek. It's not a textual issue. It's just the Greek New Testament doesn't use that word there. The word it uses is the Jews. And that's what the NASB used, and that's what uh, you know most literal translations use. But for some reason, the New King James said Judeans. There's a pattern there in Bible translation. Uh, if you go to the New Revised Standard Version and you look in the Gospel of John, you will find in most of the places where the Gospel of John talks about the Jews, using the term, uh, the NRSV says the Jewish leaders. Not what the New Testament says. It says the Jews. Why are these phrases being changed? Well, let's read again the passage that this is attached to. Uh, it is verse 14c through 16. Uh, 
For you also suffered the same things from your own countrymen, just as they did from the Jews who killed both the Lord Jesus and their own prophets and have persecuted us. They do not please God and are contrary to all men, forbidding us to speak to the Gentiles that they may be saved, so as always to fill up the measure of their sins. But wrath has come upon them to the uttermost. I grew up with a best friend who was Jewish, and we're still buddies. Um, I've known a number of Jewish people, and I don't want you to hate them or persecute them. Persecution is the act of the world and the devil, and I would never say anything that would have you do that to anyone. That's not to be done. But there is in evangelical Christianity a spirit of real buddy-buddiness with the Jews. It comes out of premillennial dispensationalism, and at its most extreme form, it says, now, Jews are in a covenant with God. God still loves them as the chosen people. Uh, they are delivered by being in that covenant. Uh, Jews are better than Muslims, and they're built on the Hebrew Bible. We have a lockage with the Jews to the point where we even talk about Judeo-Christian values. That is, the, that is the message from most evangelical pulpits. The Apostle of Christ says, we suffered at the hands of the Jews. And that's not really that surprising because they killed the Lord Jesus. And they drove us out of the country. And in fact, they are enemies of mankind. They are committing the worst sin against man that can be committed. They are attempting to keep us from sharing the gospel so men will be saved. But you need to know the wrath of God has come upon them to the uttermost. Now I ask you, Christian, let those words of Scripture sink in and ask yourself the question, what does it mean that the wrath of God has come to the uttermost? How deep is that wrath? What does that entail? If you were to experience the wrath of God to the uttermost, where would you be? What standing would you have before God if the wrath of God had come upon you to the uttermost? Are you in a saving covenant with God if the wrath of God comes upon you to the uttermost? Are you a friend of God in any way if you are keeping the gospel of God from being spoken to men so they can't be saved. The, the scripture clearly does not put what is called Judaism in any positive light. Paul says those who are identifying under the term Jew, they are not you. 
and they're not a friend of yours religiously, they would really like you not to be saved. They would like you not to be Christians. They will act in such a way as to keep that from happening. And it is 2,000 years later, and Paul is still right about how that works. Uh, go to Israel and see how uh, welcomed and loved you are if you're an evangelical and you preach the gospel in Tel Aviv. Uh, it's a very quick way to go to jail. Um, I will leave this where it's at, again reminding you that I am not saying that Jews are any worse than anybody else, but the language of the Bible doesn't make them your friend. It's just what's here. And then the last question that needs to be dealt with from the passage is, uh, who is your friend and who should you, how should you feel about them? Well, as Paul brings this uh, passage to a close, he writes, but we brethren, and using the word but we, he's putting himself in contrast to the Jews, but we, brethren, having been taken away from you for a short time in presence, not in heart, endeavored more eagerly to see your face with great desire. Therefore, we wanted to come to you, even I, Paul, time and again, but Satan hindered us. For what is our hope, our joy, or crown of rejoicing? Is it not even you? in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ at his coming. For you are, present tense, for you are our glory and joy. We oftentimes sing Psalm 16. In fact, we sing it so often, I resisted the urge to put it in the worship this time because we do it all the time. But uh, that psalm begins with, the Lord is my total portion and my, my whole joy is in him. And then in the very next verse, he says, and as for the saints that are in the earth, they are my delight. And you have to ask the question, well, if the Lord is your total everything, how can you be delighted in the saints? Well, the answer to that is the saints belong to God. You are exalting in God and God has a family. And that is those who belong to him by covenant um, having talked about their enemies and those who would keep them from being saved, Paul ends the chapter by reminding them that in Christ there is a fellowship in which you will never be kicked out of. And that fellowship is the fellowship of those who will be with the Lord Jesus Christ throughout eternity. Uh, God has put the lonely in families, to quote the Psalms. In this case, God's covenant people is a family. We were longing to see you, even though some people hate you. We wanted to get to you. We wanted to fellowship with you. Why? Because when we think about the things that really give us glory and joy in this world, we think about you. You are our glory and joy. And even through eternity, so you will be. We will rejoice in the fact you are there. We will exult. We will joy 
There is a family that God has built in Christ that will be around Christ's feet for eternity. Uh, you are no longer alone. That is a remarkable hope, and Paul uses the term, you are our hope. Uh, man was not made to be alone. Man was made to be in covenant. God made him to be social. Where do the children of God find that in the world? Well, they find it with those who belong to Christ. As I have said before in other sermons, uh, only God makes a Christian, only God gives faith, which means if Christians are in your life, they are a gift from God, no matter how irritating you find them. Uh, they are a gift from God. They really are. They, they are God's way of giving you a fellowship that will last forever. And so even in the midst of the world's hatred, realize you have a family name that will never be stripped from you. And in this world, you should seek them. Paul says, I wanted to come to you. I wanted to be with you. I wanted to fellowship with you. I didn't get a chance to do that, even though I longed to do it. Uh, why, according to the text? Who was opposing that? Satan stopped us, but we wanted to do it. The people of God are in many ways like a fire in a hearth. Now, this imagery is not mine. I'm taking it from Ambrose. It's going to sound profound. It's like, well, the pastor came up with that. Nah, it's Ambrose. When you lay logs in a fire and you set them on fire, the fire burns among the logs and the logs reinforce one another's flame. If you take a log out of the fire, what happens to the log? Burns out, right? A lot quicker than the others. There is a blazing fire that they all produce. Uh, Satan likes it when the logs are separated. Satan goes out of his way to do that. Uh, you have an opportunity to fellowship with the saints, but there's a whisper in your ear that says, I don't want to do that. Who's speaking? Especially when you realize that on almost any given Lord's Day, uh, you have been blessed by the presence of your brothers and sisters you have felt the Holy Spirit. You've been refreshed in the things of the covenant. Who is whispering in your ear saying, I don't want to fellowship? Who has a vested interest? We would come to you, says Paul, but there was an active force keeping us from doing it. Satan didn't want it happening. I think every Christian should take that to heart. In the midst of this world of war and woe, where will God naturally tend to tend to your wounds and to build your faith and give you a family and refresh you along the way? Well, it's with the saints of God. It is the devil who whispers in your ear. 